Okay, so Pius and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer by John Brown and Wamfrey, Chapter 5, In Whose Name We Should Pray. John 14, 13, 14, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> so the name, the name is Jesus. Uh, the reason for taking hold of that name is he is the, the surety of the covenant. He's done what we were unable and unwilling to do um, in ourselves. And he's he's actually surmounted the obstacle uh, that we can't do. Once the covenant of works is broken, uh, there has to be a removal of the the guilt of sin. Right? There has to be some kind of an atonement made in order for there to be an acceptable service rendered. Uh, Jesus does both. He makes an atonement for us and then he stands in as a surety and gives complete obedience to the terms of this covenant so that it's a covenant of grace to us. And so when we, we pray, we're going to call upon uh, the Son of God in his mediatorial character, Jesus. And we're going to uh, stand to God in, in his character, not on any merit or ground of our own. Okay, we're going to begin with question 308. <clears throat> question 308. Uh, what is the third particular in the manner of right prayer? So the third particular, <clears throat> and he's talking about the particulars that are held forth here in this text of John 14, and that is um, the name, right? The name of the person in and through whom we are to ask or pray. And this name, um, this name is the name of the um, the Son of God incarnate. And in and through this name, we have uh, complete confidence that the covenant of grace is made sure or established between God and man. <clears throat> so, 309. <clears throat> How is this name invoked in this place? If there's an invocation of the name of, of Christ. Well, we, we know that Christ is God. And we're, we've already seen we're to pray to God. But again, what is particularly in view here is not, um, not his divinity, uh, but that humanity through which we take hold of his divinity. In other words, we're to make use of Christ as the way to the Father. Right, we're in other words, we we want we are acknowledging the need for the desirability of and the necessity 
of a mediator. <clears throat> so we're not <clears throat> we're not simply praying uh, with an eye to Christ's divinity, but with an eye to the office of mediator, uh, because we're acknowledging our own inability, our own indisposition, our own uh, <clears throat> uh, indigency when it comes to uh, the keeping of the law of God. Right? We we are uh, covenant breakers in Adam. We call that original sin. But as Paul points out, really from the moment we're born, uh, we go astray, we show, we demonstrate that we are, in fact, uh, sinners by nature, right? That this is not, <clears throat> the imputation of the guilt of Adam's sin is no mistake, it's actually uh, very much warranted because our nature now demonstrates that we are sinful creatures. We're not simply creatures, but we're sinful creatures. Okay, so again, uh, you know, with respect to a different topic, but there, there's an idea a lot of people have that, you know, children are innocent, that children are uh, somehow unspotted and untainted. Um, and there's a lot of thought that, you know, you, you don't even, and this is really why Baptistic theology has taken root, the idea that you don't need to be baptized until you've come to some mystical age of accountability. <clears throat> the fact is that infant baptism is a declaration on the part of the church that all are born in sin and all need to be cleansed from that natural corruption, right? It, it is the first um, and tangible tendering of the gospel to all who are born within the hearing of that, that preached or administered covenant. And <clears throat> that, that goes back to uh, the fact that, you know, we need a mediator. You know, if, if there was some point at which we uh, didn't, then perhaps we could approach God apart from a mediator. But no one can be saved apart from the mediation of Christ. All right, 310. And now we're going to begin looking at <clears throat> several things that uh, he wants us to remember. There are ten things, I believe, in this chapter, and then there are some other sub-points that uh, we're going to talk about as we go. So, 310, what is the first thing that it, that this should bring to remembrance? Uh, this idea that we're praying to God through Christ, through his mediation. So the first thing is, and, and I've been talking about this to uh, some of these points to uh, make the point about the mediation, but let's break them down now. The first 
the first thing then, the first thing that you should remember is man by his sin and rebellion against God has put himself out of favor of God <clears throat> and has separated man from God. And we um, we could look at Isaiah, if somebody has Isaiah 59, verse 2. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you. Come on here. Yeah, this, this theme of the separation wrought between God and man by sin, uh, this is a theme that we find reiterated again and again throughout Scripture, right, in different ways, but it's really uh, the, the same message that is being transmitted. Uh, because one thing that fallen men need to understand, and they resist, fallen, corrupt human nature hates this idea that you can't save yourself, that you can't even contribute anything to your salvation. You know, it, it, this is Christianity in this respect is <clears throat> is very, very tricky because every other religion in the world, including Talmudic Judaism, teaches, that you are responsible for, um, can, in, in some degree, some respect, you're responsible for the work of your own salvation. Some degree of obedience is going to justify you before God. And... <clears throat> While we do think that obedience is part of your salvation, your obedience has nothing to do with your justification before God. There's nothing you could do to contribute to that. Yeah. What's the Jews? How do they deny the fact that you know Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness? How do they get past that fundamental text about justification in the Old Testament? I, I think. I, well. This is a problem. We already see it in the Gospels that they come to externalize and compartmentalize uh, the keeping of the law. And <clears throat> so there is a sense in which you could, um, you, you could potentially keep the law externally right that you, yeah you could you could hold to it and and uphold it in an external manner but remember what Paul says when I get to that tenth commandment thou shalt not covet well 
that's not something that is addressing an external action. Okay, even if I thought all the other commandments were, and they're not, but even if I uh, even if I were to concede that, when I get to that tenth commandment, I have a problem because coveting now is telling me that God is not only looking at our outward actions, but He's looking at the inward disposition of my heart. And Paul actually says when when that commandment gripped me, when I realized what that meant, that's when I, I you know, I, I was really forced to my knees, right? I, I, at that point, I knew that all of my pretensions to keeping the law couldn't be right. Because my heart, when I examine my heart, I mean, I know, uh, even if I didn't break out in any outward egregious uh, transgression of these commandments, in my heart, you know, I've committed idolatry. I've committed, uh, you know, blasphemy. I've um, I've broken the Sabbath, you know, because I've I've thought about things uh, other than keeping the Sabbath on the Sabbath, right? I've um, I haven't honored my parents, you know. Yeah, outwardly maybe I complied with what they said, but inwardly. You know, there were times when I was griping with that. You know, and you can go right down that list because that's what coveting is. You know, coveting is ultimately you want your own way. And so Paul understands this. And that's, you know, that's something that Jesus is continually trying to get the, um, the scribes and the Pharisees to understand. You know, you, you've got a, a very clear division going on in Israel at the time of Jesus, right? There are going to be Jews who believe, and then these other people who are going to follow after uh, the leaders of Ju- of this uh, anti-Christian Judaism, which will become Talmudic Judaism, right? It's going to be codified in the Talmud, and and that's why in the response in response to the New Testament, yeah, sure, uh, you can't. I don't know how anybody could deny that. I mean, there are things in the Talmud blaspheming the name of Jesus, so you know it has to be in response to Christianity, right? I mean, it, this is not just something representing the teaching of the ages. Uh, it represents their take on the teaching of the ages in response to Christianity. Right, they're trying to to whitewash out of their tradition uh, anything that would would point to or uh, possibly favor the interpretations of the Christians. So that's why they they, they justification by faith. Yeah, they're they're it's they're focused. The tradition, but they, they steal it, right? Yeah, and 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 it you know even among even among the Jews to this day, right? They're they're not all Talmudic Judaism. Jews, um, and among the the Talmudic Jews, you've got different flavors. But I mean, you've got an entire movement of, called Karaites who reject the Talmud, uh, and they just hold to the Old Testament. And yet, you know, when you read their interpretations, and I have a couple of books by Karaite Jews, you can see them arguing very strenuously against. 
the Christian interpretations of things in, say, Isaiah or whatever. It's all based upon this idea, though, and it's the same idea, whether they fall into this Talmudic codification or or the other, it's this idea that they retain, that they can somehow uh, keep enough of the law to be pleasing to God. Right? But the point is, you know, sin. <clears throat> sin, and, and this is where um, James, when he's talking about uh, faith, you know, the works that justify, or the, the works that, that demonstrate that we've been justified by faith, James makes clear, if you break the law at any point, and this is what Paul was saying in Romans 7, if you, you know, I... When I, when I got to that 10th commandment, I realized I really broke all the laws, right? I can't, I can't keep nine of the 10 commandments and, um, think that, you know, well, I'm 90% there. And therefore, you know, in fairness, God would have to allow that I'm 90% there. No, once you start looking at the command you broke, you're going to begin to realize in order to break that commandment, you actually had to trample over all the other commandments as well. But there's just no way you can uh, transgress one command without it uh, not only impacting the others, but without the demonstration that you've already um, shown yourself to be a rebel against the whole law of God. So this is why sin is separated between God and man. Right? Man is a, a rebel, a hater of God, and by nature an enemy of God. And so that's the first thing that, you know, in this invocation of the name of Jesus uh, is going to remind us when we're praying that we are not in a position of ourselves to make an approach to God, because by nature we're rebels, and we, you know, we hate God. And uh, the Bible indicates God is not fond of the wicked either. All right, <clears throat> what's the second thing they should be bring to remembrance? Three eleven. Well, after we've considered our sinful estate, the second thing is this, that the Lord of his grace and free love has condescended to take away this enmity and distance in order that he uh, would would um, make a way for, for a, a people that have, have departed from him to draw near to him again. And so not only, and we, by the way, we see this uh, right away in, in Genesis. Uh, when we're told that when God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of paradise, he puts an angel with a flaming sword, and the Hebrew says to keep the way. Uh, a lot of people tend to look at that and think that um, that angel is standing there preventing them from getting back. Uh, what's preventing them from getting back is actually 
the fact that they stand under the judgment of God and are dispossessed. But what that angel with the flaming sword is doing is actually maintaining a way back. In other words, there's already a, this idea that God himself will see that, I don't know that it's Christ, but it's it's certainly uh, a messenger of God. Um, and these these are the same angels, I think, that are there that we see over the mercy seat. Right there, they're there um, keeping the way to God. That is in the sense of guarding it. Right. So no one, no one is going to come uh, without a wedding garment, as it were. Uh, but on the other hand, it's not entirely closed off forever. Right? There's actually a, a, a passage that's been kept open, and it's through this passage that God descends um, condescends in free love right, to take away that enmity, that, that barrier of sin so that God and man can be reconciled. And that's what Christ represents. <clears throat> right? He's, he is the grace revealed, uh, the condescending free love he, you know, God condescended. He came down from heaven in order to effect our salvation. That's the, the incarnation is um, a demonstration of the condescension of the love of God for his people. All right. The third thing that this should bring remembrance, 312. Is that this way is through his son. That <clears throat> this is the son of his love. His only begotten son. And that he is the way, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Um, so, for example, John 14, verse 6. John 14, 6. John 14, verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Yeah, so... When God condescends, um, this is something I, I, I haven't really talked about, uh, and I, I probably could have in, in the context of the Gospels, but when the Bible talks about a way, <clears throat> I am the way. In Oriental culture, the first roads, which is what hadas or derek in Hebrew, uh, what, what these words connote, these first roads, the first roads were actually roads which were established by kings. And there's actually a, a reasonably good explanation for this. Um, throughout the ancient Middle East, 
you don't have easy access to water. And so it took someone with not only a measure of wealth, but also the command of a number of men, because you have to build wells along the way. Right? And, and that creates a road or a path in the way. And then that path created by the prince or the king, that over time becomes a highway that travelers use. So the idea that Christ is the way, when the Bible says that, is the idea that the great king has, uh, when the Orientals heard this, they would think of that, that road opened by a king. That anyone who is going to travel to heaven has to take that road. There's no other road. Right? Because there's no one from this side who could have opened a road. Because no one has the, the required uh, resources to make that way. And so the, that name that we're invocating when we think about... Um, this, you know, we're talking about the one who has mediated, the one who's taken upon himself the office of mediator, is the eternal Son of God, and more importantly, I think, um, for sinners who are who are trying to understand what this love is that God has for them, this eternal Son by nature, is the son of his love. The love of the Father is eternally and constantly reflecting upon the Son. In the hypostatic union, when, when the Son of God assumes our nature, which is what we're going to talk about in the next point, uh, that that love mediated. is experienced in our nature. We, we experience it in a mediated way, correct? Correct. All right, so 313. What's the fourth thing that they should bring to remembrance? Uh, and then why is this necessary and to what is he compared? So the fourth thing is that um, the mediator, this mediator is God-man, <clears throat> which is to say he is god and man in one person, right? The hypostatic union, it's not a natural union. It's not a union of natures. The divine and the human are not joined together, but the divine and the human commune being joined to the same person. So it's, it's not a natural union, it's what we would call a hypostatic union or a personal union. So the mediation is not natural, but personal. And this, again, gets to, um, uh, well, why is this necessary? Um, this, this union becomes the meeting place where sinners meet with God. Right? God is in Christ, as the Apostle Paul says, reconciling the world to himself. 
So what's what is happening is if if um, if this union were a natural union, then the panentheist uh, notion that everything is in some sense God and God is in everything, uh, that everything has a spark of divinity, that it, we, you, you, you may call it pantheism, but it's actually panentheism, uh, that the, there's, the, there's this theism in everything, right? That's really what pantheism is teaching. <clears throat> and a lot of people are pantheists, right? They'll and they'll say, you know, well, I'm I'm God. God is in me, and and all of that. That would be true if if in fact the divine nature entered into a union with the human nature, right? If it was a natural union, but there is no natural union. There's a personal union, and that's exactly why the person in whom that union occurs. That's the meeting place between God and man. And that's exactly why Jesus is a unique person and the central figure of our religion. Because in him, the divine nature and human nature actually meet together and kiss one another. There's a reconciliation. But again, it's, it's hypostatical union or personal union, not a natural union. I don't know that a lot of people have thought much about this point, but uh, it, it's an important point, and it's a point that um, that Brown clearly understands when he's making this, and he's he's assuming that you understand that that, that difference. All right. So, why is or to, to, excuse me? To what is this compared, or he compared here, then three thirteen C, and that is um, he's compared to the mercy seat. He's the true mercy seat. And what is the mercy seat? It's above the ark between the cherubim, where God appeared to speak with His people to to make known His will to His people. And he's the true temple unto which his people were to look in faith. Right? So if you if you wonder why um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, the whenever there's a mention, and you can kind of figure out what's going on, of the the people in the Old Testament praying, they're always p- praying toward Jerusalem. Right? Sometimes it says they're praying toward the east or, or what have you. Uh, but when you break it down, ultimately they're always praying toward Jerusalem. And they're praying toward Jerusalem because Jerusalem is where the temple uh, either was or was to be built. And the temple is a great type of Christ. So they're they're recognizing uh, typically what Christ himself embodies. The need for this mercy seed um, to be revealed in our nature. Which is what Christ has done. Okay, five. The fifth thing that this should bring to remembrance, 314. 
<coughs> and you could probably have already gathered this point uh, to some extent, and that is the mediator to the end that the enmity might be taken away and access granted to rebel man. Uh, he satisfied justice by sufferings and death. And he's taken away the enmity between God and man. That's why I, I mentioned this earlier, right? That, that, uh, uh, and this is precisely why fallen man cannot get back to God simply by keeping a covenant of works. Right? Simply by a course of of active obedience. It's not going to happen. Because before that obedience could be acceptable, the person rendering the obedience must be acceptable. And people possessed of uh, sinful nature cannot possibly be acceptable. Right. There is no place of acceptance for them before God. Which is why even if you were to be born and you never broke the law, you say to me, I've never, like that rich young ruler, you know, I, I've kept the law from my youth up. I, I've, I've done everything. Of course, what does Jesus say? He says to him, Go, okay, fine, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. Well, you see, what he did, what Jesus did actually is pointed him to which commandment? The tenth. That's the one that got Paul. Because that's where you have to grapple with the idea that uh, what I'm doing is rendering an obedience outwardly. But unless there's an inward disposition going along with it, it's not going to be acceptable. Right? When, when you are rendering an obedience, uh, but you're just going through the outward motions, it's not really acceptable. It's not really obedience. You're paying what we, we call lip service, and the Bible does as well, right? It's lip service. You're, you're, you're saying yes, but, you know, inwardly you're, you're rebelling. And so Christ has made peace by taking away uh, the guilt, right? That that was um, imputed, the guilt that was uh, incurred when Adam fell. All right, three fifteen. What is the sixth thing this should bring to remembrance? And then also, uh, what office in particular is viewed herein? So, the, um, <clears throat> the sixth thing is this. We, we, can, um, we can see in this that the mediator has taken on suitable offices to work on this access and to perfect the same and also to encourage us to make use of him for that end.
that's what Christ has done. And invocating his name reminds us that he himself <clears throat> has taken upon himself this, you know, suitable office. He's a mediator. And he has, you know, worked in us this access, worked for us this access, and he'll bring it to perfection. And he encourages us in all of that. So the office in particular viewed here is the office of high priest. He's the great high priest. And he is the one who is... Um, <clears throat> He's the one who has taken upon himself uh, the responsibility for the sacrifice to see that it is it is offered in an acceptable manner. The Bible actually has a lot to say, and, and Brown at this point um, gets into a number of points with respect to uh, this idea of of um, Christ being the great high priest. He points, among other things, to um, Revelation 8, <clears throat> where we see <clears throat> the, um, the prayers of the saints being offered up, <clears throat> and they're being offered up with an incense, which represents the... Um, that work of atonement by which those prayers are made acceptable to God. Right, so this office of, of high priest, again, uh, frankly, is a reminder of the, um, the fact that we're making use of a mediator. You know, if you look all of the people of God were taken by God in Exodus 19 to be a kingdom of priests. They were all to be priests to God. And yet God, under that Old Testament um, economy, uh, sets apart the Levites in particular, and the family of Aaron <clears throat> to be priests and high priests and to take care of all of these things. And so um, this is pointing to the idea of uh, that we call substitutionary atonement, right? They're substitutes who are going to be uh, they're substitutes for all of the, the people of God so that all the people of God are not going in to make these sacrifices. Uh, they're doing it on their behalf. And the responsibility to see that it's done acceptably falls on their shoulders. Well, that's exactly what Christ is doing. Right? And that's, that's mediation. <clears throat> so these Old Testament priests are types of that, and Christ himself is a great antitype. All right, 316. 
Uh, what's the seventh thing they should bring to remembrance? And then, why did he take upon himself the seed of Abraham? So, uh, the seventh thing that it that it brings or should bring to remembrance is that the mediator being a true man um, though he was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, he yet made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant. Okay, so, in other words, the Son of God, in order <clears throat> to take upon himself our nature um, and, and to live as a true man, he had to be prepared to set aside all of the divine prerogative. Right? Adam, uh, Adam didn't get to live the life of God, as it were, is living the life of a man, a, a perfect man, a sinless man, to be sure. Uh, but nonetheless, he was not living uh, the life of God, as it were. And and this is what Jesus, when he comes, when, when the Son of God is incarnate in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, um, he is setting aside, and the word Paul uses here uh, actually inspired a movement in the 19th century. Uh, the word is kenosis. He's emptied himself. And that means that he... has set aside that the divine nature and all of its prerogatives, sort of like um, walking into a room and taking off, you know, your, your, uh, uh, your kingly outfit. Yeah, your kingly outfit or, or what have you exactly as you go into your personal chamber, right? You're, you're setting aside all the prerogative, the royal dignity and all of that in order to make himself of no reputation. And this is all, by the way, keep in mind, this is why the Bible talks about and and um, uh, references uh, the condescension of God and the, the condescending love of God. Right? Because what he's done is, uh, in, in order to redeem man, he set aside all divine prerogative and and made himself of no reputation <clears throat> now this the why did he take upon himself the seed of abraham <clears throat> well um this gets into uh, i think a very interesting question slash point uh, there are a lot of people today, a lot of even people claim to be Reformed theologians. Uh, Wayne Grudem is one of them. He's very popular now among certain circles. 
Uh, he is asserting, uh, along with some others, uh, these are Calvinistic, uh, but also Baptistic. A lot of times there are elements of the charismatic movement mixed in with these folks. Uh, but they, what they're asserting is that God has an emotional life. God, Which is true only in well, Christ. <clears throat> so, in th- that's and that's our point, right? In taking upon himself the seed of Abraham means that he has a human heart, as Brown puts it, that can be stirred and moved and affected in a holy and sinless manner, as well as our own with our infirmities, and as, as much as the bowels of a mother yearning for a child. Right. So he's God, the divine nature is, and, and the church has always confessed this, it is impassable, which means it does not have emotion, right? The divine nature, when, when the Bible speaks of, uh, of uh, things that sound like emotion, just like when the Bible speaks about God changing his mind, those are anthropopathisms. Right? These are these are um, condescending uh, statements to help us have some sense of what's going on. Right? But the divine nature does not change, whereas emotion, passions, are by their almost by their very definition, I would say. Uh, representative of this idea of changing, right? They rise and they fall. They're hot and they're cold and so on. Okay, now, are emotions inherently sinful? You know, the Bible has a number of things to say uh, negatively about emotions. Paul says of some uh, in Philippians 3, whose God is their bellies, talking about their emotions, their belly gods, uh, whose end is destruction. He said they're enemies of the cross. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, he would have, he would have um, given them much more information. He wasn't constrained, he said, in himself, but he was constrained because of their own bowels, their own emotions were keeping them from hearing the full truth. And, and yet... As um, I, I alluded to uh, recently, there's a, there's an article, an interesting article by B.B. Warfield uh, on, on the emotional life of our Lord. <clears throat> and it's clear Jesus has emotions right, because he's a true man. So while the divine nature does not experience this impassionating. The fact is that the eternal Son of God does experience passion because he's assumed the divine nature, or the human nature, excuse me, because he's assumed our nature. He experiences passions. So God does, in fact, have an experiential knowledge of our passions, which is why when the Bible speaks in that way about God 
feeling this way or that way. It's not simply theoretical. It is grounded in the reality that is the incarnation. All right? But that doesn't mean that the divine nature is impassioned. So I think it's an interesting point, and it's a very interesting um, uh, thought to, to uh, meditate upon. And it certainly, I would say, has um, very profound implications for how we uh, interact ourselves with God. Right? But again, <clears throat> this just shows us, and, and Luther was very big on this point. Um, Luther hated the idea of uh, what he would call the absolute God, the God of the philosophers, or the God of the scholastic theologians that is being contemplated apart from Christ. Because Luther would would uh, emphasize, we can't really know God apart from Jesus. Okay, and God is not really reconciled to us apart from Jesus. Anyway, this this um, human nature, which is now hypostatically or personally united to the Godhead, um, is capable of being affected with our griefs and miseries, our afflictions. Right? He's he he is tempted in all points, like as we sin only accepted. There's there's no sin. Right, so why is it? You know, when you're tempted, very often you're drawn away. Why does the Bible say, you know, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, that we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, because of your sin nature, when temptation comes, it finds hooks in you to draw you. You know, it either it can grab hold of those hooks and draw you. But when temptation came to Jesus, as we see uh, with, with his his temptation by the devil, there's nothing in him that is going to be able to be snagged and pulled into that temptation. There's no there's no sin in him. Uh, we're not like that. But anyway, he has. The, the, the point of all of this, if you want to reduce what I've just said in, into the um, point that Brown of Wamfrey wants you to have on this, is this. The fact that he's assumed the seed of Abraham makes him able to be a sympathetic. He has sympathy. He can be a sympathetic savior. And that's an amazing thing. God has condescended so much as to assume our nature so that he could be in sympathy with us in our misery. And that's something we should think about when we take, we take hold of the name of Christ when we pray.
right, 317. What's the eighth thing that this should bring to remembrance? And then how can this be? So, the eighth thing is that this high priest of our profession and this mediator, Jesus, being man still, because he hasn't, um, by the way, he when he ascends into heaven, <clears throat> he does not lay aside that assumption of our nature. Right? He is personally united with our nature forever. Once he assumes it, he forever retains this. And so... He has a real human, perfect, and sinless sympathy with his people in their necessities and distresses. And so, the, um, And, and, uh, this is precisely because of this personal union that he's taken upon himself our nature. All right. The ninth thing. Because <clears throat> really the seventh and eighth points, uh, are, are very much related, taking upon himself the seed of Abraham and, and all of that. The ninth thing that this, that this should bring remembrance, 318, and then in what respect is Jesus inferior to the Father, and then what has he been given to carry on and finish this work? So, the ninth thing is when we invoke Jesus' name, we should remember this Lord Jesus is employed and sent of the Father, So that he um, he comes with that authority of the Father and that commission of the Father. <clears throat> right? He's not unsent. Another important point. And this gets into questions that we've talked about in different connections regarding what we call the covenant of redemption, that agreement from eternity between the Father and the Son, that the Father would give to the Son a people, that the Son would um, fulfill the conditions of the covenant for that people. He didn't simply uh, demand, as it were, out of nowhere, that what he does for a people is acceptable. In other words, this is a result of an agreement, an eternal agreement, a covenant that um, uh, he would come and do this. And so he sent with the authority and commission to do just that. <clears throat> That's important. So 
in in what respect uh, is he in, inferior to the father? Three uh, eighteen B. And the fact is that his inferiority inferiority to the father which is alluded to um, let's look at it there are a couple verses I want to have read here uh, John 10 29 and 14 28 John 10 29 John 14 28 1428 John 1428 John 1428 you would rejoice is the Father greater than the Son naturally? Well, uh, the church has answered that and said no. Right? They're the same God. There, but there, there are these relational, and particularly these economic aspects, right? That he's been, and and so he's he's inferior in respect. Brown says. Um, in the in this, he was appointed or made for this, right? For this act of condescending, right? He was sent by the Father on this errand. So uh, you know, there is um, and there has been. <clears throat> a question it's been very much agitated uh, and here's a, a case where I think Wayne Grudem is on the right side of the question and a lot of people today are not um, and that is regarding what what this subordination of the son is or is not um, there's clearly the son is subordinate in the economy or the work of redemption. But there's a question as to whether or not the Son is in any sense subordinate to the Father ontologically. And I think the answer is um, and, and has to be that he is in the sense of there's an order in the Holy Trinity. Um, it's not a natural subordination, and it's not even a personal subordination in the sense of any person uh, as he is God, but it is a personal subordination as these persons relate to one another, right? So he is the son of the father. 
<clears throat> and, it, you know, the Bible always speaks of the Son doing the will of the Father. The Father's never doing the will of the Son. Right? The Spirit's always being sent by the Father and the Son. You know, it doesn't go in the other direction. That's why we talk about the first, second, and third persons of the Trinity. But the, So these are personal relative um, properties which which are, are demonstrating a there's a personal relative subordination but there's not a personal um, a, a personal uh, natural subordination <clears throat> right so the I think you, you you have to be careful about this because um, if Jesus is is God but not the same God as the Father, like the Arians or the Jehovah Witnesses uh, today, they're modern Arians, um, like they assert, then what we're really asserting is polytheism. Right? There's more than one God. <clears throat> But we're not asserting that there's more than one God. Okay, there's only one God. There are three persons uh, in that divine nature. But there's only one inseparable divine nature. And that's because divine nature, and I've said this before, and you may not understand it, uh, but the divine nature is simple which means it does not admit of division because it's not compounded. It's not a mixture. It is something which is simple is singular. And it's not divisible. It's not separable. It's not um, in any way uh, conceivable of being divided. And yet the three persons are conceivable distinctions which which have a direct relation to this divine nature each of them being god by reason of the perichoresis the, the father uh, is in the son and the son is in the father and the spirit is in both and both are in the spirit by reason of the perichoresis, that that uh, singular divinity is able simultaneously and fully um, to be the nature of each person. There's also, I guess you said, paraphrases in the human nature, right? Because we're all sitting around the same law of the same nature. Yeah, but there's not... Um, there, human nature is compounded. And there's a spiritual and there's a, a physical. And that which is... Uh, or, or I should say material. And that which is material is divisible. 
which is why uh, individuation is uh, clearly happening with you know humans. All right, <clears throat> the three eighteen uh, C. Right? What ha what has he been given? Carry on and finish this work. <clears throat> Uh, the fact is he's been given the authority and commission. And so he has the, what we would call the furniture or the abilities granted of God for carrying on and finishing this work. And what we mean by that is this. Because he has a commission from God, the authority of God, he has been given uh, to have the spirit above measure. And all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him. He doesn't have anything by half or or in part. <clears throat> All right, three nineteen. What is the tenth thing they should bring to remembrance? And then who is the Lord Jesus Christ? And then why did those of old pray toward the temple? I've already answered that, but we'll come back to that. Um, so the tenth thing that this should bring to remembrance is this. <clears throat> the mediator, who is God and man in one person, the Godhead, which is infinite in itself and inconceivable by us, <clears throat> condescends to be some way accessible by us when we approach to him in Christ in whom this Godhead dwells bodily. That's actually, if you think about, I mean, in, in Luther, Luther is one of these people, and there are a couple of Puritans that talk this way as well. Uh, and it's, it's a very interesting thing to contemplate. But Luther would say this, in the finite, that humanity which Christ assumed, that finite was made to circumscribe the infinite. And in that condescension, the infinite was made knowable to us. This is why we can only approach God in an acceptable manner through Christ, right? We, we can't conceive of God absolutely, right? That is... We can't conceive of God outside of Christ. <clears throat> because all of our thoughts of God outside of Christ, um, they go awry. Right? Christ anchors our thinking about God in ways that are accurate and attainable by us. Because outside of him... This Godhead is inconceivable, and yet Paul says in Colossians that in him the Godhead dwells bodily, the fullness of the Godhead, right? The complete Godhead. The infinite dwells in the finite. The, the infinite dwells in the finite, <clears throat> which is just an incredible thing to try to take in. Just mm -hmm. meditate upon that, and it will, you know, it will... Yeah. Isn't that what, what the early fathers talked about as well, where you know uh, the cup's always overflowing, or the cup's over, 
beatific vision. Like we're always being filmed, and we like constantly like. In, in the beatific vision, yeah, it's the, the idea is that the cup is always being filled, it's always full, it's always overflowing, um, and yet it's not losing anything, right? It's, it, there, yeah, there's, there's an idea that we're going to be able to, um, I think Edwards, Jonathan Edwards talks about um, every person has, every person is, is in fact that capacity. So it doesn't matter how big or small your cup, when the cup is full, the sense uh, of being filled that each cup has is the same. But um, anyway, all right, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? This is uh, 319B. <clears throat> and we've uh, been talking about this, but let's just make it very clear. He is the second person of the Blessed Trinity, right? the eternal Son of God. Now God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And he is that person through whom we must approach God and in whose name we must ask what we ask. And finally, um, 319C, why did those of old pray toward the temple? And I, I mentioned that before, but Brown is very clear. Uh, they had their eye toward the temple, which was a type of Christ, uh, who was a true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. And, and there he's referring to John 1. Um, John 1 says that uh, when Christ came, he, he tabernacled. Right? When he, he tabernacled among men what the Greek says. That's an important uh, concept, tabernacled among men. Because the idea is that God himself is pitching his tent, his tabernacle, the true tabernacle, and so praying, looking toward that is, uh, typically speaking, um, that is the same as praying in the name of Jesus. Right? They don't know his name yet. Well, they should have guessed it. I mean, G Jesus means the Lord is salvation. Right? They should have guessed that. And they might have guessed that because the name actually occurs in the Hebrew in a number of places like in, the, in the Psalms. Yeah, but in the Psalms. Because I've, I've always thought it was kind of funny. I remember... Um, Someone a number of years ago, when the idea of psalm singing came up, he just said, they'll never take away my hymns to Jesus. Uh, and I just thought, well, you, obviously, you should know Hebrew, but, I mean, if you did, you would realize that every time 
the idea of salvation is mentioned, it's Yeshua. You know, it's the name of Jesus is being referenced. And there are numerous other references, and I, I do try to bring them up as we go through uh, the Psalms. But um, uh, anyway, he, these things are types. The temple, the tabernacle are types. And he's the way, of course, and the door. All right. So there are just a few more things in this chapter we want to address. <clears throat> um, 3.20, and what six things does the wonder and condescension of God appear in this? That is, in, in him assuming our nature. So, first... A, um, first is that uh, there's a wonder of love and condescension in that he should ever suffer sinners who were under a sentence of condemnation to return to him and present their petitions to him. Think about that. Right? I mean, the name of Jesus is reminding you that you are by nature an enemy of God. <clears throat> and he's given you a name above every other name so that you can actually ask this God who is your enemy uh, to grant your desires. Or 320D, second. It's a wonder of love and condescension that he himself should find out and appoint a way how they may approach to him and present their supplications. Right? He didn't have to do that. He didn't need to do that. But he does so anyway. In other words, God doesn't just simply, God isn't simply interested in being reconciled. He takes upon himself to do everything, the whole work necessary to reconciliation. And that's a wonder of, of, of love and condescension. All right, 320C. Third thing. It's another wonder of love and condescension. That um, that God. would make this way of approach, this way, in and through the eternal Son of God. In other words, think about, of all of the things that might have been done, <clears throat> and there are probably a lot of them, It's amazing that he 
fixes upon a way of condescension and, and, and a way of reconciliation in and through his eternal son. All right, 320D, the fourth thing uh, which the wonder of love uh, and condescension appears is that we should thereby have such encouragement and heart strengthening considerations. Or, no, excuse me, uh, the fourth thing, uh, that for this end, uh, that is to be a way of salvation. The eternal Son of God himself must condescend so low as to become a man and to take on himself the form of a servant and be uh, made to experience grief and sorrow. Incredible. Uh, and then 320E, the fifth thing, is that we should thereby have such encouragement and heart-strengthening considerations to make use of this mediator in presenting our uh, supplications to, to God. <clears throat> Finally, the sixth thing 320F. Uh, it's a wonder of love and condescension that God would have us to make use of this way only in coming to himself. He says, you know, think about it, it's really him uh, having us come to himself in the arms of Christ. All right, then the last question in this chapter, um, how should this commend and endear prayer unto us, and how should it encourage us to come? So, uh, 321a, um, this should commend and endear prayer to us that we have such a new and living way such a glorious and exalted intercessor through whom to present all our desires. Right? We should uh, we should recognize the advantage and make use of it. And 321B, how should it encourage us to come should encourage us to come even when all things else would discourage us and make us faint. He says, after all, think about this. God in himself now become man. God and man in one person forever. In order that we could have access to God through him. 
So although it may seem like we um, have covered a bit about praying in the name of Christ, uh, the next chapter, chapter 16, uh, we're going to look at what it is to pray in Christ's name. So we're going to continue this theme and we'll be looking at this for the next couple of chapters.